Hey, thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace, it is our full conviction that as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. We are committed to teaching the whole counsel of God that the people of God might be built up and that lost sinners might come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We go to the Lord in prayer, prayer of the nation. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, thank you for your word, Lord, that uh, you have given this to us, that you have preserved it throughout the ages, and thank you that uh, you just uh, show yourself to us in that. And Lord, as we go into the, the hearing of your word this morning. Lord, would you just be with Pastor and as he brings that, would you just give him strength? Would you give him courage? And Lord, would you work in our hearts? There are so many distractions in this world, Lord, and would you just help us to uh, put aside all those things we get distracted with in the business of life, Lord, and just to uh, focus upon you, Lord, would you just take us as lumps of clay and just mold us and shape us according to your word and uh, Lord we just uh, ask this to you and we thank you that uh, your word remains forever all this we ask in name alone well as you probably aware we've um, been working through some difficult doctrines and yet glorious doctrines at the same time and uh, as we work through what is sometimes called the Tulip Doctrine, or the Doctrines of Grace, um, sometimes Calvinism, it has many different names, I suppose, we come now to the, the Doctrine of Christ's Atonement, uh, sometimes referred to as Limited Atonement, and that is with our, uh, the, the Tulip acronym T-U-L-I-P. Um, we come now to the L and... This comes really to the heart of 
the gospel. And as you can begin to see, uh, as we understand man's lost condition, that we are born into sin, that we, after our father Adam, are a rebellious people, and that according to that nature that we have inherited from Adam, we all act in a manner of disobedience, of rebellion against God, and that our fallen condition is so bad that we are rendered unable to respond to God, unable to seek God. The authors of the Bible use language like dead in trespasses and sins. And so we see that it is uh, a very gloomy situation, a very dark situation for humanity. But as redemption unfolds, even in the Garden of Eden, we find that God has purposed not to condemn all mankind to his wrath and judgment in hell, but he has set his favor upon a remnant, upon what the scriptures sometimes call an elect group of people, um, in many ways symbolized by the people of Israel, the, the people of God, the covenant people of God, with whom he has purpose to save. And we saw last week God's unconditional election, that his choosing is not based upon anything within us, Nothing about Aaron Hale is desirable to a holy, infinitely wise God. The only reason I would have any share in the grace of God is because of his own kindness and mercy poured out through the Lord Jesus Christ. And such it is for all who are saved, all who call upon the Lord, come because of his call. And so this morning we begin then to understand and look at the, the work of Christ on the cross. What was the aim of Christ on the cross? What was the reason that the Father sent the Son to come to the earth? What was the, the design of God in the cross? And did Christ fulfill that commission? Did, did Christ fulfill all that the Father had purposed for Him to do in, in the work of the cross and in His resurrection? Those are kind of the two main questions I want us to try to look at and answer from the scriptures this morning. Um, what was the Father's design in the cross? And what did Christ accomplish in the cross? No doubt a daunting task to try and unpack. Um, so we'll really at best scratch the surface and I pray that it is an encouragement to you and uh, the cause of further study and reading and uh, listening. So when we come to the atonement of Christ... Um, a lot of times people will comment that this whole notion of the atonement of Jesus being limited in any sense is just too difficult to even consider. It's too offensive. It's just too extreme to think that Christ, uh, in any sense, had a limited purpose in his atonement. People feel that it is somehow restrictive uh, to their idea of God, to their idea of God's grace and love. Um, but as people who believe the scriptures are the word of God, we need to be careful that we are submitting ourselves to the scripture and not trying to reshape the word of God based upon our own uh, emotions, our own uh, preconceived ideas of what God is like, that we come to the scripture and we submit ourselves to it and what we find there. Um, people you know we talk about 
being reformed in our theology, and I think, you know, of course, theologically, uh, it makes sense. We're identifying with the great history of, of Protestant Reformation, which really finds its roots um, right back into the early centuries of the church, and finally into the scriptures, we believe, as taught by Christ and Paul. But we must be continually reminding ourselves that we're not so much as reformed as though we've already reached our destination, but we are to be constantly reforming. We're to be constantly reforming ourselves to the scripture. And in that sense, we never reach that final destination in this life of being reformed as though it's a finished work. And so this is the aim, that we come to the scriptures and we think of the work of Christ on the cross and we submit ourselves to what we find in God's word. Many people will tolerate the idea of total depravity, um, that we are born in our trespasses and sins, that we are dead in that condition spiritually. And, uh, you know, they might complain a little bit, but generally most Christians today will give some uh, affirmation to that doctrine. Some might even be able to entertain the idea that God has elected us. I mean, how can you avoid the subject when the scriptures are full of it? Many of the New Testament writers write their letters to the churches, beginning with the doctrine of election, encouraging them that, that God has set his favor upon them from the foundations of the earth. And, uh, and so people might, you know, grit their teeth and listen to you talk about election and maybe offer a few comments of dislike or disapproval. But when we come to this whole idea, this doctrine about a particular atonement, um, it seems that generally people lose all composure at this point, And they lose the ability to carry on a uh, Christian conversation and you start to hear terms like Jehovah's Witness, cult, heresy, and, and it is no doubt of the five doctrines one of the most difficult and I think uh, most offensive to our carnal mind. Um, it is uh, in that sense uh, often the source of controversy. And I think uh, in in their defense, and I for myself remember wrestling heavily with this doctrine as well, not that long ago, and, and really struggling through understanding what it means. And, and in part, I think this struggle comes from the fact that in the Bible, we have verses like John ten fourteen and 15, which Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And you say, okay, there it is. Christ has died for his sheep. He has died for, for his people. He, he has sacrificed himself for his own. That seems clear. But then you are continue reading through the scriptures, and you come to a verse like 1 John 2, 2, which reads, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And you think, okay, well then it must be a universal atonement. The atonement of Christ must be the same for all people. And the effect of the atonement, the same towards all people. Because there it is, John says, for the whole world. And you might be tempted to throw up your hands and say, I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to think about this doctrine of the atonement. I don't know what to think of, of the design of God in the cross of Christ and the work of Christ. And so maybe some just decide not to talk about it and, and just continue talking about the weather instead of such things. 
But let us not do that. Um, I believe the scriptures do offer us um, an answer in how to understand. And we won't get through all of it today. I think next week we'll probably, Lord willing, look at some of the, what we could say, uh, problem passages or the passages that seem to to be contradictory to, um, as I just showed you, um, to this idea of Christ dying for his church, for the sheep. And then you have this more universal language used. And we'll look at some of those passages next week and try to understand them. Um, so this is a massive subject. And it, and it is at the very heart of the gospel, which I think is why it often uh, hits people so dramatically when they are challenged on this issue of Christ's atonement. And I think the most common view of the Christian community today when it comes to the work of Christ on the cross goes something like this. That Jesus came to earth because he couldn't stand the thought of heaven without us. In fact, there's a very popular song nowadays that uses that line. That Jesus came on this rescue mission because he just couldn't stand the idea of heaven not having us there. And so Jesus comes and his aim is to do everything he possibly can to make salvation available to us. He, he does everything within his power, even to the extent of offering his own life on the cross and then being raised by the Father, that we might have the option of being saved. It is a um, possible salvation. It is um, a potential salvation, but not that Christ actually definitively, definitively saved people at the cross, but that he rather opened the door that, that people could be invited in and could be free to come of their own choosing. And so we have to walk this line of, of the, the gospel being freely offered to all and all being able to be saved and yet not violating our notion of free will. And this is often the idea. And so Jesus died on the cross to take away all our sin, many would say, basically to give us all a get-out-of-hell-free card. And it's up to us to take that card and cash it in and use it, right? And, and that's often the idea of the atonement, that universally every person has been given this card and it is now up to us to use it. And uh, in fact, the evangelist's job then basically becomes to convince people to use it at whatever cost. Uh, emotional music, maybe lighting, maybe a little bit of smoke, you know, hovering on the stage. Uh, maybe some empty promises of health, wealth and prosperity. Whatever we need to do to just coax people into using this card that they've been given because of what Christ has done. And... That is generally the view of the work of Christ. He has made salvation possible for all, but not actually uh, having definitively saved anyone at the cross. And it seems nice, you kind of get warm fuzzies when you think of the work of Christ in this way. It's comfortable, it seems fair, uh, seems simple enough to understand. But the problem comes in when you start to consider what else you must affirm by that position, by that view of the cross of Christ. Um, you would have to affirm one of two possibilities at least, if that's your view, that Christ has accomplished this universal uh, potential salvation. You would have to say, 
um, either that Christ atoned for everyone's sin and therefore no one will go to hell because there's no longer any cause for men to be condemned. You see, if Christ truly paid for all of our sin completely and finally on the cross, then on what basis can God condemn anyone? There is no basis left. The debt has been paid. Um, even the most crooked uh, loan shark or money lender would not try to make somebody pay for the same debt twice. Once the final bill has been paid, once that final installment has been made, then the debt is clear. You are free of any obligation to that contract. So we could not say that Christ paid for all our sin, and then God, the Father, would then in turn also require us to pay for our sin in hell. And so you're left with, a, with the idea of universalism, that, that all are going to be in heaven, that all are going to be saved, and that we don't need to warn people about judgment or hell or anything like that. So that would be one possible affirmation, which many would want to quickly deny. Um, most Christians today do not identify as universalists. They say, oh, no, 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 I'm not saying that. Well, okay, then here's your other option. Then Christ died for those who are in hell, and his atonement for them was wasted and without meaning. That's the other option. So if we have a universal uh, atonement where all people's sins have been paid, and all are offered salvation and free to accept or to reject, then you must also say that those who are in hell and were already in hell at the time of Christ's death, that Christ died for them in a way that was meaningless, in a way that was without purpose. Are we prepared to say that? Which is worse, that Christ died for a definite group of people according to the Father's design, or that the Eternal Son died needlessly? Pretty sure you would agree that it would be far worse to say that Christ's blood in any way was wasted or was in vain. So, when you consider that, you're forced to stop and, and maybe think for a moment. Surely the Father would not discredit the Son's sacrifice and punish those for whom Christ died. God forbid that even one drop of the blood of Christ would be wasted. And so, we then come to ask the question, well, what was the design in the cross? Um, some might counter and say, well, the gift is only good once you accept it. And so, and so that's really you know, how we get around this problem of, of being universalists. But then you still have people being punished for sins that Christ supposedly died for. Even if they say, well, it's, it's unbelief that, that they're sent to hell for. It's not all their other sins that Christ paid for. It's just the sin of unbelief that they must pay for. Well, then you have the problem of Christ not actually atoning for all of our sin. That we have to, by our believing, earn a bit of merit. And Paul couldn't really say that it's not of works. He should say it's mostly not of works, right? If we have to believe to kind of finish the deal, and that's the only sin that Christ did not atone for. It just doesn't work. We are stuck with that view of the atonement of Christ, with either universalism or saying that Christ's blood was wasted for those who are already in hell. So what is the biblical position? 
how are we to understand the work of Christ on the cross? And um, we read from Ephesians 5, and I know this is a passage that oftentimes is used to, uh, as Paul used it, to admonish husbands and wives as we relate to one another, as we seek to honor Christ in our marriages. But let us not miss the illustration that Paul uses. Um, This whole picture of the covenant relationship between Christ and His bride and the work of Christ for His bride, the church. What has Christ accomplished? And Paul, in seeking to admonish husbands and wives, reminds them of what Christ has done for His bride, the church. And it really begins in this context of covenant. The covenant relationship between Christ and His people. Um, Theologians will refer to the covenant of grace, or what the author of Hebrews calls the eternal covenant. This is where you must start if you're going to understand the work of Christ on the cross. That there is a covenant. And this covenant is reflected even in marriage today. That it is, a, it is like a shadow of the greater reality of God's covenanting with His people. And we, we see in the scriptures... That even before the foundations of the earth, there was a covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. A covenant to redeem a people, to deliver a remnant out of mankind, and that Christ the Son would atone for them, pay for them. The Father would adopt them as His own. He would justify them, sanctify them, and and glorify them. And that the Spirit of God would be the person of the triune God who would bring about our salvation into our hearts, causing us to be born again, causing us to be filled um, with the goodness and grace of God, and preserving us to final glorification. This great covenant between the Father and the Son and the Spirit is where we must begin. We've looked at some of these verses um, already, but just uh, by way of reminder, um, we can flip to some of them again. Um, We see in in 2 Timothy 1.8 that Paul, again writing, um, we we have this little glimpse of, of this, as though Paul pulls back the curtain for a moment um, into eternity past, and he tells them in Second Timothy one eight, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So there is our the the, the manifestation of our salvation, a, a saving, a calling, um, not because. Not because of our works, Paul says, but because of his own purpose and grace. There's this purposing of God, the grace of God, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Lord Christ Jesus. The coming of Jesus Christ into the earth is not God running out of options in in trying to reverse this mess that humanity is in. It's not God giving one final attempt to rescue us. This is the fulfillment of the eternal plan of God, the eternal covenant of God between the Father and Son being manifest in the coming of Christ. And we see this throughout the New Testament, that God the Father purposed before the ages began 
to redeem a people from mankind. I was looking at the little uh, children's catechism, and it's, we've used mostly the shorter catechism, and I know I've referenced this before. Um, this was the, the, the Baptist version from the 1689 Confession, uh, which is very similar to the shorter catechism. But question 43 asked this, and um, you can find this actually... Well, I'm hoping to get some in. The, the Founders website has these little booklets um, called Truth and Grace for Kids to just work through with some of these questions. But this is question 43. What did God the Father undertake in the covenant of grace? The answer, to justify, adopt, and sanctify those for whom Christ should die. And we've just seen there in Second in Timothy we see this um, a few other places just before we move on to consider uh, Christ's work. Specifically, the, the, the decree of the Father. We've probably all heard reference to the Lamb's Book of Life. right? This, this mysterious book in heaven that records the names of the redeemed. And uh, for a long time I had this idea that this Book of Life was being kind of added to as history progressed. That the Book of Life was constantly being filled uh, day by day as people were saved and uh, very much consistent with my um, former view of this kind of universal atonement that, that as we cash in those, you know, get out of hell free cards, then another name goes in the book and, and God's book is filling up and he's happy that uh, his work of salvation was not in vain. Um, you know, it is almost the mindset. But when you actually look in Revelation 13, for example, verse 8, you have this, this book described. And uh, now depending on your translation, this might vary a little bit. I know the NIV um, translates a bit differently, but we'll look at one more verse that says almost the same thing. And there is translated consistently. But Revelation 13 verse 8 says this. Um, well, back up to verse 7. Speaking of this beast... That declares war, and it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And there we see that the names were not, they're not being added to as history moves forward, but actually were written before the foundations of the world. Which is a very different picture of salvation. It is this decree, this covenanting, this purpose of the Father to redeem a people. And in some form represented in this book of life. We see the same thing said in, in Revelation 17, 8. Again, speaking of this book. It says, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And again, you have this this picture of this book that was written and the book of life, the, the book of the Lamb who was slain, those names of the people that Christ will redeem, and it is written from before the foundations of the earth. The decree of God, the purpose of God to redeem a people. So what is the Father's design in the cross? It is just that to justify, 
Adopt, sanctify, glorify those for whom Christ should die. And so we need to understand that um, when we think about redemption, salvation, and how we fit into it, if we start with man, if we start with, with us as people, then we're going to likely fall into error. We must start with God, the one who is eternal, the, the infinitely wise one, God who was there before anything was created, and there between the triune God was a purpose and covenant given to redeem people. And so what is the work of Christ on the cross? Um, question 39 in the, in the Catechism says, What did Christ undertake in the covenant of grace? The answer is to keep the whole law for his people and to suffer the punishment due to their, due to their sins. So Christ in the covenant of grace, the Father purposes to redeem a people. The Son purposes to fulfill all righteousness, keeping the law for His people, and then to suffer for them on the cross. Question 46 asks, For whom did Christ obey and suffer? The answer, For those whom the Father had given Him. And wasn't that long ago I read some of these for the first time and it's just almost frustratingly plain and simple and yet truths that I had not heard for the better part of my life. Christ died for those whom the Father had given him. And this is what we find um, in Ephesians 5 so clearly as Paul is, is trying to encourage the Christians in Ephesus and instruct them and even in their marriages say, um, you know, you, you as Christians ought to be uh, different in the way you relate as husbands and wives. He roots all of that in this covenant work of Christ for his bride. And what do we find? We find for the bride, for the people of God, Christ is the head. And he uses such language as to identify us as his own body. The body of Christ, the people of God. He says that Christ is himself its Savior in verse 23. That, that Christ in a unique covenantal way um, as the husband is the Savior of the church. It would not be right to say he is the Savior of all people in that same sense. In that covenantal way, Christ is the Savior of his church. Of his bride. We're told that he loved the church um, and he gave himself up for her, Paul says in verse 25. There is this covenantal love, this affection that Christ has for his people, that on the cross there was a unique display of the love of Christ to his church that was not displayed to any other. In many ways, um, understanding the atonement, I was thinking about the difference between getting, you know, flyers in the mail. Um, some people like flyers, some people don't. 
I tend to like a few of them and you want to kind of flip through them, you know, you get the, the good tool sales or whatever it is you're looking for, maybe some, you know, the PV Mart, whatever, you, you know, the guys generally want to flip through this. Don't throw that one away, that's not Firestarter just yet, I want to flip through it, right? Uh, and you get one of those in the mail and it's kind of like, well, yeah, I know everyone else in the town got one too, I don't really feel that uh, special that I got this flyer from PV Mart, I don't think they had me in mind specifically. But maybe some of you are uh, old enough to remember writing letters, I'm not talking about email, I'm talking about letters to your spouse. Even my wife and I did a little bit. Um, we were kind of right on the, the, the uh, maybe the, the fringe there where it was mostly, you know, before texting we were dating and so we didn't text, we did email some and sometimes wrote a letter. And understanding the atonement of Christ, that he has died for his body, is the difference between getting a flyer in the mail that everyone else in town has got and is really not that unique or getting a letter from your husband or wife in the mail. Getting a letter that is unique that, that they better not have written to someone else, you know, if, you, if your wife says, oh, thank you so much for that letter. Oh, don't worry, I, I sent one to everyone in Fairview actually. So that wouldn't go well, would it? No, this picture of the covenant love of Christ as He lays down His life and as His blood is poured out, there is a uniqueness designed in it that He says, this is for my wife, this is for my bride, this is for the one that I love, this is for the one whom the Father has given me from before it, it, things were created in, in eternity past. The Father purposed to give me these people and I lay down my life for them that they might be redeemed. That is what we're talking about. And it is completely missed if we want to embrace this kind of universal generic salvation that really doesn't save anyone but just has God offering the Son and then crossing His fingers hoping that this works, hoping that somebody out there responds to his invitation. No, that is not the gospel. It is the purpose of God, Christ offering himself specifically for his bride. Um, we find, as Paul goes on describing this relationship between Christ and his church, we find not only has he offered himself up for her, but he washes her with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. There is this unique work of sanctification that Christ does for his covenant people that he does not do for the world. Yes, the world is to hear the message of the gospel. Yes, they are to understand that Christ is King and He is Lord of all and that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But there is not this work of sanctification that is happening in the unbeliever, this work of being made holy. And it is a painful work, is it not? To know that the hand of God is upon you to chastise you, to discipline you. I'm yet to see one of our boys... Uh, you know, rejoice with glee when they get a spank on their bum or they get some bad consequences. It's tears and sorrow and, and this look of how could you do that to me, you know? But that is what love does. It, it sanctifies, it makes holy and that is what Christ does for his church. And Paul, using uh, pressing the, the metaphor almost to the extreme, he says no one has ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. You don't get any more tender language of a, of a nourishing and a cherishing of Christ. Not for 
not for all, but for his church. And Paul then goes to the most intimate uh, aspect of marriage that we have, and that is this one flesh union. And Paul says, therefore, um, shall uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And, and it is almost to the point of making you blush, like, okay, Paul, this is, this is getting a little too informative. Speaking of the most intimate relationship that we have and that, that, that physical intimacy that is shared between a husband and wife alone as, as they um, leave father and mother and then they are united. And Paul says, even that, it is all pointing to Christ, to His love for the church. Which is why people say, well, why can't I enjoy you know, uh, sex outside of marriage, and what's the big deal? Um, why can't I, you know, enjoy all of these things? What marriage is so restrictive? It's so it's so limiting. And we live in a generation just trying to destroy any notion of restricting our our sexuality to the boundaries of marriage between a man and woman, and yet it's because this is a portrait of Christ and His Church. That is why we can't mess with it. That is why we can't redefine it. That's why we can't change it into something else because it's pointing to Christ. And if we, if we mar the picture, then, then we make a mockery of the reality which is Christ caring, nourishing, delighting in His bride. So, as we think of the work of Christ on the cross, um, I hope that you have this category in your heart and mind that there is a uniqueness in the cross for Christ to purchase those for whom the Father has given Him, for His bride, for His church, for His elect, for His sheep, for His people. This is all throughout the Scripture. Even we read um, this morning from Isaiah 53, and even back in the Old Testament, you see this language that, that Christ has come and He is going to make atonement for His people. The, the author here, Isaiah, writing, he, he continually refers to us. We are healed. The iniquity of us all. And you might ask, well then who is this us? It is the true Israel. It is the descendants of Abraham, as we've talked. Those who believe God and it's credited to them as righteousness. And so I pray that you don't uh, despair at such a doctrine. Some might think, well then, if Christ died for an elect group, for his bride, in a way that he has not died for all, then, then what if there's no atonement for me? What if, what, if, what, if I was not, what if I was not included in that number? I was not put in that book. What then? And I would urge you, that if you, as Paul said, will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. And that is the message. And we tell people, repent and believe. And if you wonder, am I part of that elect group? Has Christ truly died for me? Then if you repent and believe that Christ is Lord, you can have assurance that Christ has died for you. 
And you are to offer the gospel freely to all who will repent and believe and tell them that if they will truly believe and turn from their sin, that Christ's blood atones for their sin. And so Christ on the cross purchased our redemption, atoned for our sin. As the old hymn writer Philip Bliss wrote in the 1800s, bearing shame and scoffing rude, In my place condemned he stood, sealed with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And so Lord willing, next week we will try to dive into uh, some of the verses that seem to muddy the waters at first glance and by the Lord's grace uh, seek to understand those in their context as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Father, we come before you knowing that um, God, we are utterly dependent upon you in all things, Lord, that even the very breath that we have in our lungs, the beating of our hearts, Lord, all of these things are with are far beyond our control, and Lord, that they are reminders of how dependent we are upon your grace when it comes to our salvation, that there is nothing we bring to the table but our sin, our filthy rags, Lord, and we we place them on the table, Lord, knowing that we deserve nothing but wrath, but Lord, rejoicing that Christ has clothed himself in our filth, in our rags, and Lord, that he has died that we might be free. And I pray this would not produce pride in our hearts or arrogance, but it would produce thankfulness and praise and rejoicing and a willingness to share the message boldly and freely that all for whom Christ have died would come to saving faith in Him. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And by faith we walk as you Thanks for listening to this sermon. We pray that you are built up and encouraged in your faith and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you'd like to know more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church, you can find us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca or you could write to us at redeeminggracebiblechurch at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you to answer any questions that you might have. God bless you.